Hello, and welcome to a new series from Fidelity International, where we tap the brains of our analysts to learn about the industries and businesses you're investing in. How's the weather today? The weather now is like rain. I'm Neil Goff, Asia Editor at Fidelity, and I'm at the Smart Biz Expo in Hong Kong, a tech trade fair where you can see everything from the latest in automation to what the Internet of Things will touch next. And of course, there's the latest in mobile technology. Almost since smartphones went mainstream some 10 years ago, there's been talk about what shape the next generation of personal technology will take. That's known as the form factor. Mostly what we've had along the way are incremental advances to the now ubiquitous, sleek, rectangular design of that smartphone in your pocket or purse. But recent advances in material technology could be about to change all that. In fact, our analysts think we're about to witness the biggest step change in mobile phones since the dawn of the iPhone about a decade ago. The other obvious thing that any visitor to this trade show will notice is the abundance of Chinese technology companies. China's tech sector had earned itself something of a reputation in the past decade as a builder of technology mostly developed by others, a copycat rather than a leader. But again, that's also changing. China has now positioned itself as a formidable player on the world stage, not just in mobile hardware and communications, but in a range of associated technologies. Even in smartphones, Chinese companies are now jostling to overtake firms like Apple and Samsung for domination of the global marketplace. So a new generation in mobile communications and a new leader of the technology what could all this mean for consumers, manufacturers, app developers, content providers, and investors? I asked our analysts on the ground in Asia. Listen on to find out more. With me in the studio here in Hong Kong is Casey McLean, an equity analyst covering tech hardware, semiconductors, and the smartphone supply chain across Asia, and Peter Carter, an equity analyst who also focuses on tech hardware and industrial automation in greater China. Welcome to both of you. Casey, let's start with the mobile phones themselves and this step change or form factor shift that uh, I mentioned in, in the intro. What's happening here? Well, smartphones have been an unprecedented success. In the decade or so since they've released, billions have been sold and penetration rates globally have risen quite sharply, probably quicker than most people expected. And uh, you've reached a point now where what was once a novel innovation has now become pretty pedestrian. Uh, in a mature market, things like increasing the memory size or uh, adding some new features like Face ID haven't been enough to get people off their lounges. So recently you've seen Samsung develop the first real form factor change in a long time with the, the release of their foldable smartphone. So folding mobile phones aren't entirely a new idea. I mean, we've had clamshells or flip phones that have been around for a long, long time. So tell me, what exactly is new and different with these? Why it's significant is that uh, smartphones have become very powerful. In fact, uh, the iPhone now is as powerful as, as some of the MacBooks but the form factor itself limits its usefulness. There's only so much you can do with a small touch screen. Whereas a, a, a foldable phone is uh, considered the best of both worlds. When it's folded, 
you have a, uh, a normal smartphone uh, that you can use and, and has all the benefits of portability, but when it's unfolded like a book, you get a far larger screen. It's about three quarters the size of an iPad, which means you can operate multiple apps at once, much like a, a laptop or a desktop. You could also perhaps use functionality like a pen, and uh, if you were to pair it with a, a portable keyboard, it, it can replace many of the functions that were performed on a laptop. Yeah, so I, I guess over the last few years, we've seen you know, a constant growth in, in screen sizes. There's the rise of the phablet. And I think over this year, at the end of uh, 2017, uh, the average screen size will be about five and a half inches. And you know, you're starting to get to the issue of usability. So your ability to use your phone in only one hand. Um, and some people already find phablets quite unwieldy. So... The idea is that if you can have the usability of a smaller phone and then also the screen size of a larger phone to you know, game or use videos, then you get you know, your benefit of, a, of your tablet with the functionality of your smartphone. Casey, have there been any like specific technological advances that have enabled uh, us to get to the point of having folding phones or what's changed that's paved the way for this? Yeah, the, the key technology advancement is what Samsung call Infinity Flex Display. Now, this, uh, this pairs their OLED display technology with a variety of materials, which means that the screen and the phone itself can fold many hundreds of thousands of times. The skeptic in me is going to wonder, is this not just kind of another gimmick or something that might really kind of struggle to gain traction? I mean, I'm thinking back to things like Google Glass, the original Google Glass, and how that never really kind of caught on. Do you see this as, as being a, a bit of a flash in the pan, or is this really the... the paradigm shift the game changer i think given it's an it's more of like a an evolution in existing technologies it's kind of basically bringing your tablet and your smartphone together to two products which are very successful in their own right whereas you know things like google glass or some fatty things are maybe solving something with potentially inferior technology or technology that isn't right yet or maybe a form factor that isn't very user-friendly so i think it genuinely meets a consumer need that is out there and is desirable you've genuinely seen people want bigger screens and we've kind of got to the maximum you can get with just one rigid screen so I think it genuinely meets a need, and it's unlikely to be just a flash in the pan. Casey, would you agree with that? Or Yeah, I think Google Glass was, was a solution waiting for a problem, but uh, the foldable smartphone does meet some genuine needs. But having said that, I don't think uh, change happens quickly in the IT industry, uh, and I don't think the foldable were any different. If you look at laptops versus desktops, it took two decades before laptops overtook desktops. And I think at a price point, which is likely to be 1500 to $2,000, the scale initially will be pretty small. Um, Samsung is expecting about a million units to be sold in, in 2019. Um, and I think once they collect all the feedback on the hardware, the user experience, and how that uh, pairs with the operating system, they'll go for more of a full-scale launch in, in 2020 and beyond. Um, I also expect all of the major smartphone suppliers to have at least one model in the market um, by the end of, of 2019, with uh, the exception of Apple, who is probably going to be uh, slightly behind that schedule. Casey, who are likely to be the winners from this shift then? Within the smartphone ecosystem, uh, now that you've reached a reasonably mature state, the market will begin to consolidate. 
you still have about a quarter of smartphones sold by the other players, which are those other than Apple, Samsung, and the four major Chinese suppliers, Huawei, Xiaomi, Oppo, and Vivo. I expect uh, their market share to shrink drastically and, and the market to be consolidated between the, the, the six big players. But I think the real impact of foldable phones is, as a general rule, big screens means big data. And so there's, there's a direct correlation between the size of the screen and the amount of data consumed. So in the first half of 2018, users with a screen size greater than five and a half inches consumed 50% more data than those with a smaller screen under 4.7 inches. And I think the, the advent of, of foldable smartphones will only accelerate these trends as, as there's more use of, of video-related applications, things like YouTube, Netflix, um, even video calls like Skype. But it also extends the usability even further into gaming. I think even reading of, of e-books becomes uh, easier and better to use on, on a foldable phone. And then um, there's even the potential uh, substitutability with laptops. Very bullish potentially for telecom operators, I would say. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think uh, telcos will benefit from the the greater data usage. And uh, there's also an interesting statistic that Apple uh, told us that uh, there's almost a near perfect correlation between the price of a smartphone and the amount of data or the amount of services that user consumes. So that will be a clear benefit to telcos. And, you know, we're talking a lot also about the shift from 4G to 5G. How important is that to enabling this kind of form factor shift with, with smartphones, or is it a separate uh, development? I guess this is the big question about whether network operators will benefit as well as whether they can monetize the shift to 5G. So. Uh, there's been a lot of questions as to what the use cases are for 5G. One definite thing is the continued need for more data, especially in urban dense areas. So, you know, in, in capital cities, especially in transit hubs, it's already struggling with, with data bandwidth and, you know, foldable phones, etc., and various other things. Consumer usage of data will increase. And in terms of the beneficiaries from that side of things, um, you know, you've obviously got the rise of the, of the uh, Chinese network equipment vendors like Huawei themselves and ZTE especially versus the incumbents of uh, Ericsson and Nokia, that'll be quite an interesting trend to follow. Casey, what do you make of this in terms of, is this China's moment and in, in the, the prominent role that kind of Chinese uh, smartphone companies, but also further down the supply chain are going to play in this? Is this a, a moment where they're going to kind of assume a greater leadership role in the industry? Yeah, I think smartphones has been a, a remarkable success for the Chinese industry. Uh, I think generally people have regarded China technology, China companies related to all things technology as being copycats. But I think in the smartphone industry, uh, they've assumed a genuine leadership position. Uh, and a lot of that's to do with their, their much faster design cycle. So if you look at the likes of Apple or Samsung, their flagships are released annually, whereas the Chinese players have even six-month design cycles. And it means they've been able to iterate with, with new features and in many cases have been first to market with, uh, with some features such as the full screen or bezel-less displays, pop-up cameras, dual or, or triple cameras as well, and, and under-display fingerprints. Uh, so I think within, within the landscape, Huawei has really been the, the largest beneficiary. Uh, and I think a large part of their success is due to the in-house technology that they've developed. The key part being the AP, the application processor, which is the brains of the smartphone. 
and if you look at the smartphone industry, there is only three brands with their own AP, being Samsung, Apple, and Huawei. And these three companies have commanded a huge proportion of the industry's profits, and I don't think that's any coincidence. Uh, so I think Huawei is, is a formidable competitor in the market uh, and it's viewed that way by its peers, Apple and Samsung. And uh, I would not be surprised to see them assume the number one global market share at some point in the future, also aided by their, uh, their multi-brand strategy that they're using in various markets. But I'd also highlight um, a Xiaomi, which is, which is another unique story within the, the Chinese uh, ecosystem. It was a company that was only formed in, in 2010, but has already risen to be the fourth or fifth largest supplier globally. And, and they have a slightly differentiated strategy in that uh, their tagline is, they sell amazing products at fair prices. So essentially you can buy an iPhone-like product at half the price. So the Walmart of iPhones, if you will, or the Walmart of smartphones, if you will. Yeah, yeah in, in some respects. Um, I mean, their, their business model is not based on generating profits from the hardware or from the smartphones, but their, their plan is to gain profits from the internet services, an ecosystem that they develop around their hardware. So in many ways, you can see that their hardware being the profits that they generate from that is sort of a customer acquisition cost to get users onto their, their internet ecosystem. Um, so in terms of internet economics, there's a real benefit there. The drawback or the limitation of the model is that potentially your user base of the internet services is limited to the owners of, of, of the hardware. But that's, a, that's an innovative model and I do consider expect them to gain greater market share both in, in China and globally. Peter, what are you seeing? I mean, would you agree this is, is this China's moment or is, is that kind of overstating the current situation? It's fair. I think that it's not necessarily a moment. It's like a gradual shift. They've obviously been very open about the fact they want to move up the technology curve. There's a number of Chinese companies uh, across the supply chain that are starting to challenge uh, historically areas where maybe Taiwanese or Japanese companies were leading, uh, penetrating into the high-end suppliers. So be that, you know, Shenzhen O-Film, uh, LensTech, um, even like BOE who do the displays, um, challenging the Taiwanese, Korean and, and Japanese display manufacturers. So I think it's been a gradual shift, but quite constant in terms of China improving their technology, improving their IP. And we've obviously mentioned Huawei. Um, they're obviously one of the, the leading companies uh, across a number of verticals in improving their IP. I think more broadly, there's been a bit of a sea change in the Chinese technology landscape. I think when you're developing new technology, there's, there's a trade-off between innovation and, and return on investment. And Historically, the US companies have focused on innovation, disruptive innovation in particular, and haven't really taken a, a great view of the revenue or profit generating ability of a disruptive technology, at, at least in the near term. Whereas Chinese development have been firmly focused on revenue, the here and the now of, of revenue. But I think their vision is slightly shifting to a longer term vision. Uh, and you can see this, in the, it's evidenced in um, the amount of R&D they're spending now, which is a long-term investment. Uh, they've now become the second largest spender in R&D dollars, overtaking the EU and just behind uh, the US. They're, they actually account for about 20% of global spend. And uh, 
it's evidencing itself in in output. Their their amount of research papers has also risen to second globally, again behind the US, with a lot of that actually being focused on the computer sciences and and, and the engineering. So you can see that that is being uh, translated into real world, into into companies. Um, China is making the push into memory, which is a key component in, in basically all IT devices. Um, they've also made fairly large leaps in, in the foundry operations and uh, making huge strides in AI, which is, is in part melding the software with the hardware. And, and on that uh, industry in particular, being such a nascent industry, they're on, on level pegging with the US and, and have potential to be the, the global leader in time. Peter, what, is it, what does it mean for you if China is emerging as a global leader, you know, across not just smartphones, but tech more broadly read? Is that what's happening here? Yeah, I guess so in terms of some of the networking equipment and that supply chain, you've already seen Huawei and ZTE in 3G and 4G pretty much caught up by the end of the 4G cycle. And in 5G, they are spending significant amount of money. I think Huawei now, they don't release the numbers, um, but you can roughly back it out and they spend just as much as Nokia and Ericsson combined. Uh, it's about $7 billion in 2017. So, and, and anecdotally, I've heard that they are very much at the leading edge of 5G technology this time. So uh, if they've got a IP competitive and also cost competitive offering, then in theory, they could take a significant amount of market share globally if allowed to, given the, the uh, national security concerns. Um, and this obviously feeds through China into the, into the supply chains. There's probably more localization coming in terms of components. They'll want to source as locally as they can where that technology is available. Um, and there's various companies down the supply chain that could benefit from that. But that's the fly in the ointment there, isn't it, Peter? That series of international security concerns we're seeing at the moment about technology that's made in China. Do you expect to see more of the same? There's definitely been a rise in concerns, uh, especially from the US and Europe uh, and some other countries. Uh, I guess on the network equipment side, because it's so sensitive, there's obviously a lot of information, secure information flowing through these networks, whether it's from governments or corporates. So they're very much concerned about um, potential uh, spying, etc. from these companies. I think ZTE, especially given its fines, etc., people might be a little bit more concerned. Um, but Huawei already has significant market share uh, in Europe. They basically came along with 4G and gained a significant amount of market share through a lower cost offering. They've tried as best they can to sort of assuage concerns. There's obviously only so much they can do, um, and that's obviously like a risk for them. But I think from a telecoms provider perspective as well, you know, these are very expensive things to build out telecoms networks. And if someone can offer you the same potentially leading equipment at 20, 30% discount to your local offers, offerings, then it's a very compelling offering. And I'm sure they will take national security concerns very seriously, but it will definitely be something, it will be a combat between the two, I think. Casey, how do you see things playing out? I think security concerns and trade wars generally are increasing in their uh, veracity in recent times, and I I don't expect them to ease anytime soon. But I I would highlight that... uh, China in itself is a huge potential market uh, and a lot of the the newer technologies are being developed at home with the benefit of a a 1.3 billion population uh, who are internet savvy and they also have huge support from the government which is to the the chagrin of, of US and some of the Western governments but they also have the benefit of a, of a massive workforce of engineers. In fact, they have about five times the graduates that the US has every year. So I, I expect the 
development of the Chinese industry to continue regardless of security fears or trade wars and the government sees it as a, as a real necessity for the economic development longer term. And, and to that point, I was speaking to a, uh, a senior manager at one of the uh, Chinese technology companies yesterday, and they mentioned that they think, in their opinion, by 2020, over a third of the global 5G users will be in China. So even if they are restricted from some of these markets, there's still a huge amount of money available for them in domestic, even regional. They can definitely be profitable without some of these markets available to them. So great potential at home, if not abroad, for the entire Chinese smartphone industry and the up-and-comers within it. And that shiny rectangle in your pocket or your purse could look very different very soon. Thank you, Casey and Peter. From the Fidelity Studios in Hong Kong, thanks for listening and goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.